continuation of a series we've been going through for a couple of months now. Um, if you are looking for Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 in your pew Bibles, you can find that on page 831. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your, own, your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. May God bless the reading of his word. Morning, everyone. Enjoyed your, your time of congregational prayer. I uh, enjoyed my time. I got to pray with a couple fifth graders who were brave enough to sit in the front, but they since we. to stand with his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ during the time of the Third Reich and stand up against the Nazis and Hitler, which ultimately cost him his life? Is it someone like Mother Teresa who moved to... ...probably be considered heroes... And I wonder if any of you have similar dreams of doing something great for the Lord in his kingdom. <clears throat> Maybe you have a desire to go to an unreached land uh, to reach you know, people who have never heard of the gospel. Maybe you dream of taking a great risk or stand to stand up against oppression or injustice. Maybe you want to go and care for the poorest of the poor. But do you have to do something like this to be considered a hero for Christ? Is it only for those who seem to do the exceptional? 
even for the rest of the world, it seems that to achieve hero status, you know, it's left for those who do so-called exceptional things and do so in the spotlight. <clears throat> I was watching um, the news a couple of Sundays ago, and it was the first home game, if you remember, for Tom Brady after the Deflategate suspension. So the news reporters went to um, Gillette Stadium to interview fans before uh, the fans entered the stadium for the game. And so they interviewed fans, and they think, what do you think about Brady being able to return for his first home game after the Deflategate suspension? And the responses were, as you might expect for, you know, passionate Pats fans, we're like, Brady is a god. Brady is my hero. I want Brady to be the father of my children. You know, it's amazing, you know, how much these athletes are elevated just for winning games and, and, and being good at their sports. You know, but I don't think you necessarily have to be a celebrity to be a hero. I like this former NBA player who's at an event once said, I'm not a hero. The firefighters and the teachers are the heroes. And you know, maybe you've had dreams of doing something great for the kingdom, but once life started getting busier with work and marriage and raising kids, those dreams quickly faded. Or maybe you've resigned yourself to never having such dreams because you don't think you have the gifts or talents to do so. But in our passage today, we're going to look at a couple people who I think could be considered heroes, even though they were just ordinary people. And I think we'll see, you know, these are people that we, we all could emulate. Um, but before we get into this week's passage, we're about halfway through our series on Philippians. And since we're about halfway through, I thought it'd be good just to take a few minutes to recap where we've been so far. So if you're, as you might recall, Paul writes the letters to Philippians under house arrest chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Jewish leaders brought charges against Paul causing, uh, because he caused a riot at the temple. And so he was arrested and was you know, in, in his awaiting trial. Most likely he's, he's located in Rome. And he's awaiting trial and you know, a possible guilty verdict could lead to his death. But in spite of his bleak circumstances, you know, the theme that we've been seeing over and over again in this letter is that Paul remains joyful. He remains joyful because of the love and affection he feels for the Philippians and vice versa. He remains joyful because even though he is under house arrest, the gospel is being spread. And for that, he's grateful. He remains joyful because throughout his ordeal, Jesus is being glorified. And that's the most important thing to him. Towards the end of chapter 1, he tells the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And at the beginning of chapter 2, he begins addressing a situation that was going on in the Philippian church, which was causing division. Two sisters were fighting within the church, and apparently it was you know, spreading throughout the whole church with people taking sides. So Paul exhorts the members in verse 2 to be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit. If you remember Dr. Arthur's sermon about three weeks ago, we saw how Paul then held up Christ as the ultimate picture of what Paul is trying to tell the congregation to be like. 
And two weeks ago, in the section prior to ours today, Dr. Arthur's taught about how Paul urged his followers to stop complaining and arguing. Don't let this, this woman's argument or division affect you. So now we get to our passage. And when you heard it read, you know, maybe you heard it read and you think, this seems kind of out of place because after Paul tells the people to, you know, conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to be humble, to be like-minded, we see in our passage he talks about what? Travel plans. He talks about how he's going to send, not send Timothy to them right away. And he talks about how he's going to send Epaphroditus back right away. Some commentators have noted that there was actually no direct teaching in this passage. And it does seem a little out of place because Paul reserves subjects like travel plans for the end of his letters. If you look like in Thessalonians and Romans, it's usually at the end, the last chapter, where he talks about how he plans to visit them or who he's going to send, things like that. So some commentators even felt like, oh, maybe Paul was planning to end his letter here, and he got kind of sidetracked, which is why this is here. But I think a good case can be made as to why he t- this talk about travel plans is located where, it's, where it is. Because as Paul is teaching the Philippians the proper attitude they are to have towards one another, as he speaks to them about living worthy and what it means to live worthy for the gospel and overcoming their relational issues and divisiveness, he mentions Timothy and Epaphroditus (coughs) as examples of two people who model the kind of qualities and behavior he wants the Philippians to have. So we're going to look at two specific characteristics these men had, and then I want to share with you about some of their backgrounds so that you can see that you know, these were not you know, really superheroes. They were just really ordinary guys. So let's begin with the first trait. The first trait we see in both Timothy and Epaphroditus is that they put others ahead. They put others ahead of themselves. If you're following in your uh, outline, in your bulletin, there's a little typo. It should be ahead, not head. Timothy and Epaphroditus put others ahead. For Timothy, I like what Paul writes in verse 20. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. I mean, that's a very strong statement when you think about it. I have no one else like him. I mean, didn't Paul have access to other Christians around him? Well, he did. There were other Christians around If you were under house arrest in Rome, there was a church in Rome. He had contact with the believers there. Most likely, some of the believers even came to visit Paul and care for him while he was under house arrest. Yet he says, there's no one else to send them but Timothy. And note, too, that the term used for genuine interest or concern is also stronger in the original language. It means more that he's anxious. He feels a great burden. He feels this great weight to make sure that the Philippians are doing well spiritually. This is the type of person Paul says says Timothy is. No one else who would care for the Philippians, who would feel this great burden for them, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, than Timothy 
I mean, these are, you know, great people to have in your life, right? Those who are really concerned about you, those you know who really care about you and want to look out for you and make sure you're doing well spiritually. Those whom when you see, you sense their care and their prodding to move you forward in your relationship with Christ. I mean, I think we all need someone like this in our lives. And so I wonder whether you do have someone like this in your lives and whether you are someone like this in another person's lives. And the reason Paul states that the other Romans believers are not like this is because in the first first part of verse 21, Paul says about them, for everyone looks out for his own interests. And we get a sense of this if we study the book of Romans, we see Paul exhorting the Romans, you know, not to pass judgment on one another. He addresses them and writes them about their stubbornness and them considering themselves better than other people. And that's why Paul wasn't finding any other Christians like this, except for Timothy. In a commentary I was reading, (coughs) the author prints a quote from British theologian Leslie Newbegin, who wrote this. He said, I suddenly saw that someone could use all the language of evangelical Christianity, and yet the center was fundamentally the self, my need of salvation, and God is auxiliary to that. I also saw that quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can easily slip, can become centered in my need and in me, and not in the glory of God. And when I reflected upon that statement, I thought, yeah, that, that is really true. Because when our gospel merely focuses on how we can get to heaven, <coughs> when the talk is just about how I can be saved, then we do make Christianity very self-centered, which is the total opposite of what it should be, unlike what Timothy was like. And then for Epaphroditus, we see the selfless selfless trait exhibited in him in verse 26. Paul writes about Epaphroditus, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. To fill in some missing gaps here, What was going on was that when the Philippian believers heard that Paul was in prison and he was in in Rome, they band together and wanted to help Paul. They wanted to raise some money to give to Paul because when you're in prison back then, the jailers didn't provide you with meals, they didn't provide you with health care or other necessities. You had to rely on outsiders for support. So wanting the help, to help, the Philippians band together, collected money, and wanted to give it to Paul. So they gave it to Epaphroditus to make the trek to give to Paul. And they also instructed him to remain in Rome to minister to Paul while he was imprisoned. On the way to Rome, though, we read that Epaphroditus got sick. It was a long journey from Philippi to Rome was about 800 miles. And Epaphroditus, because he was carrying such a long or a large sum of money and it was such a long journey, most likely he didn't make the trip alone. Probably there were a few men who went with him. And when Epaphroditus fell ill on the way to Rome, the probable scenario would be that 
You know, one or two of these men would go back to Philippi to tell the church the bad news, while the rest of the team escorted um, Epaphroditus to Rome. And we read in our passage that Epaphroditus, he just didn't catch a cold. He was, you know, seriously ill. We don't know what illness he had, but in verse 30 it says he almost died. But of course, you know, we can sense that God healed him and allowed him to make this journey to Rome and minister to Paul. But it's quite possible that he wasn't fully healed yet. You know, maybe he had lingering effects of his illness. And if, it's, and if so, you know, it's understandable that he would want to go home. Maybe he wanted to be under the care of his parents or his wife. Maybe he missed, you know, some home cooking or wanted to get to some medicine that he couldn't get in Rome. And maybe if this was true, that was why Paul felt it best to send them back. And that would be perfectly acceptable to us. It sounds, you know, very reasonable. But in verse 26, that's not what we read about why Epaphroditus wants to go back. He didn't want to go home out of concern for himself. He wanted to go home out of concern for the Philippians. He somehow heard that the Philippians were concerned for him since they heard about his illness. So he's distressed, not for himself, but for them, because he doesn't want them to worry and feel anxious about him. It's not his comfort he was looking for in wanting to go home. It was their comfort. And just, this just kind of shows the type of love you know, Epaphroditus had for his fellow brothers and sisters and how he put their feelings above his own. A further example of this characteristic in Epaphroditus can be gleaned in how Paul writes about him. Once again, Epaphroditus was sent to minister to Paul and care for him during his arrest. For however long he spent with Paul, Paul thought highly enough to refer to Epaphroditus or address him in this letter as my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier in verse 25. You know, we don't read about any other instance prior to this that Paul spent time with Epaphroditus. So his impression of him must have just been, you know, just during this time they spent together while Paul was in prison in Rome. And understand that these terms that Paul uses to address or refer to Epaphroditus were not just, you know, regular everyday common terms. They would be considered, you know, just very highly high terms, lofty terms that, you know, you would just use for a very special person. So Paul must have experienced firsthand Epaphroditus' servant attitude in caring for Paul's needs above his own and serving him in spite of his own hardship and longing to go home. So once again, you know, Epaphroditus was just this wonderful example of someone who put others ahead of himself. And when you talk about putting others ahead of oneself, you know, understand that it doesn't mean that a person merely becomes a doormat that others can just step on and abuse however he or she wishes to. But when a person is secure in their identity in Christ, when you know your value and your self-worth is in Christ, it frees a person not just to selfishly meet one's own needs, but to care and love upon other people. And that's what Paul writes about when he says, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, 
to consider others better than yourselves, to put others' needs above your own. The second trait we see in both of these men was not only that they put others ahead of themselves, but they prioritize Christ above all. For Timothy, it's interesting. What Paul writes at the end of verse 21, for when he talks about how there's no one like Timothy who cares for the Philippians, Paul could have written, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not the interests of others. And that would have made perfect sense, right? But he doesn't write that in verse 21. He says, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And by writing the latter, Paul is saying about Timothy that more so than just looking out for others' interests, he looks out for the interests of Christ above all. The reason Timothy can minister to the Philippians properly is because he sees this as Christ's work, and he wants to do so to please Christ. To further prove this is Timothy's priority, Paul adds in verse 22 that Timothy has already proven himself in the work of the gospel, in prioritizing the gospel, and making sure it is spread and understood properly. Paul's basically saying, you know, I've seen Timothy as I've spent time with him and he's accompanied me on my missionary journeys. This is his MO. He puts Christ in the gospel above all other things. Regarding Epaphroditus, you find a similar example in verse 30. Paul could have written, Epaphroditus almost died coming to serve me. Or he almost died in the work that you gave to him for him to come to minister to me. But he didn't write this. He wrote in verse 30, he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves cannot give me. Other versions say he risked his life to make up for what is lacking in your service to me. And this last sentence may sound kind of funny to you. He risked his life to make up for the help you could not give me or what was lacking in your service to me. When you read it, you know, it, it almost sounds like Paul's like being an ingrate, right? That the Philippians just presented him with a substantial gift, but Paul's calling them out by saying, oh, you know, he did what you couldn't do for me or he gave to me what was lacking in your service to me. But that's, understand, it, it's not... It's not this, the case at all. <clears throat> Paul is very grateful for the gift the Philippians gave to him. But he recognizes there was a problem. And that was they needed help for someone to deliver this gift to him. It was the messenger that was lacking. But then here comes Epaphroditus to volunteer to do so, to bring this gift to Paul. And why, was he, why would he do it? Because of Paul, as Paul wrote, he saw this as a work of Christ. It wasn't just serving Paul, it was serving Christ. And that was the priority for Epaphroditus. When a person makes Christ his or her priority, it's easy to see the servant attitude come out, to want to serve and love others. Once again, Timothy and Epaphroditus were two men who faithfully served Christ 
But I don't think they would be considered celebrity Christians back then or even nowadays. I mean, they were just ordinary men. And to, to tell you why I believe this, for Timothy, many of you have read excuse me, reverses about him and are familiar with his background. Excuse me, you know how he was raised in a Christian home with a Christian grandmother and mother. He obviously developed some good traits along the way when he was young because when Paul meets Timothy in Acts 16, you know, Paul sees him and he says, oh, I want to take this guy on his missionary journeys. And even in our text today, you know, we, had, we read how Timothy and Paul had like this father-son relationship. Now understand that Philippians was written in about 61 A.D. About three years after this, around 64 A.D., Paul writes his first letter to Timothy. And in this letter, some of you may recall, Timothy appeared to be intimidated by those older than him, for this is the verse that a lot of you like, you know, don't look, let anyone look down on you because you're young, even though Timothy was probably in his 30s at the time this was written. In this letter, he also instructs Timothy to watch your life and doctrine closely. And then two to three years after First Timothy was written, Paul writes Second Timothy. And here we find Timothy still dealing with problems of being timid, because here Paul reminds Timothy that, that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-confidence. He reminds him not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to be willing to join Paul in suffering for it. I mean, there are other things in both of these letters that Paul writes to Timothy that shows that Timothy was very human. You know, he was very flawed. He had struggles. There was things that he was dealing with. These th- and these things were written after Paul wrote Philippians. So it wasn't, you know, Philippians was written after and Timothy changed and Paul was just gushing about Timothy and Philippians. Timothy did some great things, but he also had his struggles, and he was very human. But all the while, as we say off Philippians, he seeks to maintain the servant attitude of putting others first and prioritizing Christ in his life. For Epaphroditus, all we read about him is in these few verses in Philippians 2, and he's mentioned once again in a verse in Philippians 4. And from these verses, it's very hard to learn about his background. We don't know when he became a Christian. We don't know who his parents were. But it's very likely he grew up in a non-Christian home. The reason being is that his name, Epaphroditus, literally means favorite of Aphrodite. And you know who Aphrodite is, right? The Greek goddess, right? So no Christian back then would ever name their child Epaphrodite. So he grew up in a pagan background, and his parents may have even worshipped the Paphrodites among other deities. But at some point, obviously, he became a believer and joined the Philippian church. But he was just, you know, regular layman at the church. From lack of mention, it seems he didn't serve in a public capacity. He wasn't the shepherd of the Philippian church. He probably wasn't a deacon or elder. He wasn't like Paul who took the gospel to unreached areas. He didn't write anything noteworthy. He was just this regular guy who was willing to leave his home, his church, his wife and kids if he had any, his friends, to go and serve the Apostle Paul. 
but he sacrificed and he performed his duties faithfully. And so for Timothy and Epaphroditus, you know, they may not qualify for hero status, but their service to others and their commitment to Christ serves as examples that all of us can follow and aspire to. You know, maybe you won't take the gospel to any unreached land or lay down your life for the kingdom, but you can commit to faithfully serving Christ and others as God would have you. I like this illustration, and I think you'll like it too. I read in one of the commentaries I was reading. Fred Craddock said this. He said, To give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom. Maybe our attitude is, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord. Take it. I'm yours. I'm giving it all. But the reality is, for most of us, he sends us to the bank and he has us cash the $1,000 into quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. We listen to the neighbor's kids instead of saying, get lost. We go to a committee meeting. We give a cup of water, water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. Instead, in all these little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. And maybe for most of us, I think probably for the majority of us, that's how our life is going to be. Nothing grand, just faithful acts of service. I remember when I was at my church in Hawaii, we had a parking issue like we do here. Actually, it was much worse because there was no parking lot. Uh, We just had a few spaces in front of our building. Um, Fortunately, the medical building next door allowed us to use their parking structure on Sundays. And there was this older gentleman, he had to come early on Sundays because he had church responsibilities to fulfill. But no matter how early he got to church, he would always park in the parking structure, even though he could have easily gotten a space in front of the church. And he didn't just park anywhere in the parking structure, he chose to park on a higher floor, further away from the more desirable spaces. And he did so because he felt that this was one of the ways God asked him to serve him in the church community. He wasn't looking for any fanfare. You know, people just knew him as this quiet, humble guy who wanted to serve. And I know others like myself and those, you know, who were younger took notice of his example. And they sought to exemplify his servant attitude in, in many different ways throughout the church. And so how is God asking you to spend your quarters? Who might he be prompting you to serve? Who might he be prompting you on a regular basis to be Christ to and try to share the gospel with? In what small ways might God be asking you to step out in faith and take a risk to advance the kingdom? Follow the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Two men who put others ahead of themselves and prioritized Christ and his reign in their lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know, 
guys that we wouldn't know much about, you know, except that they were mentioned in these few verses. But Lord, thank you that even just from these few verses, we can glean much from their example and seek to follow these guys who prioritized Christ above all and put others ahead of themselves. Lord, may we, may you continue to speak to us on how you would like us to emulate Timothy and Epaphroditus, how you would like us to spend our quarters a little at a time to serve you and advance the kingdom in incremental steps. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor David. If you can all rise with me, we'll respond by singing Be Thou My Vision.